1: CyberBit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Foreign Intelligence Services attribute a recent cyber attack on an Iranian port to Israeli operators. EasyJet discloses a breach of passenger information... Verizon's annual data breach report is out, and it finds more errors than it does exploits. A look at the dark web during the pandemic. U.S. authorities warn local law enforcement to watch out for misinformation-driven telecom vandalism. Ben Yellen explains why the ACLU is suing Baltimore over a surveillance plane. Our guest is Rob Reck from Ping Identity on a recent CISO Advisory Council meeting regarding the sudden shift to working from home. And our evil is still offering celebrity dirt for sale, if they've actually got any. From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, May 19, 2020. Citing anonymous sources in a foreign government, the Washington Post reports that intelligence services have concluded that a recent cyber attack against the Iranian port of Shahid Rajay was the work of Israeli operators, possibly in retaliation for earlier attacks against Israeli water treatment facilities. EasyJet has disclosed a data breach that affected some 9 million customers. The Guardian writes that the airline describes the incident as the work of highly sophisticated criminals. Verizon this morning released its annual data breach report. This year's version is twice the length of its predecessors, covering more regions and more economic sectors. As Reuters reads it, one of the principal conclusions is that financial gain significantly outpaces espionage as a motive for hacking. 86% of the breaches covered were committed for money, not intelligence. Industry Week's takeaway is the biggest problem is people, not systems. Our own pre-briefing call with Verizon led to that same conclusion. Exploits are rarely the way breaches are accomplished. The report concluded that error, such mistakes as incorrectly configured databases and misdelivered emails, are now about as big a problem as social engineering. There's another trend in attack technique, web app attacks, researchers conclude, have roughly doubled. Turning to the effects the COVID-19 pandemic is having on cybersecurity, France is proceeding with its centralized approach to COVID-19 contact tracing, ZDNet reports. Authorities maintain that this is being done with due regard for preserving users' privacy. The government is particularly interested in the utility the system, called Stop COVID, might have in containing a recurrence of the virus— Earlier this month, Medium offered a summary of the app's development, including its goals and prospects. Researchers at Trustwave's Spider Labs describe the various pandemic-related scams they're finding on the dark web and note some of the underworld reaction to them. They do note that the criminals follow the news, like everyone else, swap advice about staying healthy, express concerns about the consequences of the pandemic for their own enterprises, and so on, In short, an inverted version of the kind of chatter one sees in legitimate channels. But the more interesting material reveals the deliberations and plans that directly shape the criminal enterprises themselves. For example, there's chatter about demand for masks and whether that presents an opportunity for various forms of illicit trade. Masks and other medical supplies are being offered for sale in online markets that normally hawk contraband. Those same markets also offer patently bogus nostrums, most prominently COVID-19 vaccines, which of course don't exist. Accompanying the offers are an array of bogus stories alluding to widespread cover-ups and misinformation by various authorities. The underground markets are themselves feeling some of the pain legitimate markets are experiencing. They warn their customers that they may expect service disruptions, and they shed virtual crocodile tears over the health risks vulnerable customers face during the pandemic and some of the subsectors of the criminal-to-criminal market seem to be feeling considerable pain. Carding, in particular, appears to be experiencing a rough patch. Why this is happening is unclear and seems to call for explanation. Perhaps with a general slowing of economic activity, there's been a reduction in available inventory, and with the relative scarcity of new stolen numbers, carters are recycling their wares in the markets. Criminals who have access to new stolen cards... Are reserving them for their own use. Rob Reck is Chief Information Security Officer at Ping Identity. He shares insights from a recent ISSA CISO Advisory Council meeting regarding this sudden shift to working from home.
0: So generally we have roughly 10 of our customer CISOs get together and talk about you know trends in the industry and kind of give some feedback to Ping on Roadmap we were intending to have our in-person meeting this year in uh, it was around the 20th of March. And you can imagine that didn't happen with uh, with COVID hitting. And we ended up having to shift to to virtual about two weeks later. And, and we really used that shift to virtual as a chance to to just get all of the team members of the, of the council to talk about how has COVID and the rapid shift to work from home impacted them and impacted their companies and ha- impacted their security departments. Well, what can you share with us? What sort of insights did they have? Yeah, so we got together April 2nd. It was nine different folks from a variety of different industries. And I think the industries matter because, you know, you have the really heavily impacted industries like healthcare providers. We had a cable internet provider there, an online learning provider, kind of strangely enough. Um, and mm-hmm. we had, you know, less directly impacted manufacturing and financial services, but everyone had a, a kind of a unique perspective. But
1: what are some of the things that, that you were discussing when it comes to Potential changes when we're through this, when we get through this together, uh, are, are they seeing that uh,
0: there are going to be some changes to the way they come at things? Yeah, you know, one of the, the interesting things that I learned out of this, everyone kind of across the board agreed um, we're moving so quickly that, that, that we're, we're probably not making fully understood risk decisions here. Um, the, the CISOs are trying to get in front of it, trying to understand what are the implications of every risk. Um, but it, we're not able to go fast enough when, when you know, you you shift from one way of doing work to another, basically, you know, at the drop of a hat. So one of the re- my favorite recommendations I heard coming out of this is is make sure that you're documenting each of the decisions you make as a part of this and come back and just really consider, is it the right thing to do? If you, if you now are allowing BYOD because you don't have enough laptops across your enterprise, okay, maybe that's the right thing, but maybe it's not. Or maybe you need to put some kind of new mitigation controls in place to allow you to do that BYOD
1: what sort of things are you tracking in terms of the community response to this how are these companies uh, engaging with the broader community
0: yeah i was i was really excited as we as we talked to the CISOs as a part of this council that a number of the companies that they work for have actually used this as an opportunity to give back and and really not just go after the bottom line but but try and make things better Top of the list, the workers' comp insurance company that was a part of our council, they worked overtime for the first few days of this to make sure that they were keyed in to be able to accept claims for COVID for workman's comp, which, you know, not not on the top of my list I'm thinking about. But they really were making sure their customers were able to react quickly and, and make sure their their employees were getting paid in the middle of this. Uh, we talked already about the online school that's put a 24-7 war room on this to make sure it's running. Another one we had, though, is a scientific society that really, they're generally like a fee-based research organization where you can get access if you pay for it. They made all of their resources, all of their research available to anyone who's working on COVID. So they just, you mm. know, threw, threw that whole paywall out of the way and said, if you're doing this, we want to make sure we, we support you.
1: Yeah, it's really been heartening to see the
0: the good faith community response to all this. And of course, we're continuing to to see how things are going to change. And I expect, you know, this is just chapter one of of the new normal. That's Rob Reck from Ping Identity.
1: Rob is also the co-host of the Colorado Equals Security podcast. So if that is your neck of the woods, be sure to check it out. ABC News reports that the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, the FBI, and the National Counterterrorism Center have issued an advisory to law enforcement authorities Warning them to expect vandalism directed against 5G and other telecommunications infrastructure. Quote Violent extremists have drawn from misinformation campaigns online that claim wireless infrastructure is deleterious to human health and helps spread COVID 19, resulting in a global effort by like minded individuals to share operational guidance and justification for conducting attacks against 5G infrastructure, some of which have already prompted arson and physical attacks against cell towers. In several U.S. states. Such attacks, hitherto more commonly observed in Europe, have begun to appear in the U.S. as the bogus theory of a link between cellular networks and COVID 19 gained traction. Some of this vandalism predates the emergence of the COVID 19 virus and therefore also predates the misinformation that's now driving the incidents, Business Insider notes. Arson was reported at cellular infrastructure sites. As early as December of 2019. And finally, Dark Owl researchers have been tracking the activities of the R Evil gang that's claimed responsibility for hacking celebrity law firm Grubman Shire, Masilis, and Sachs. The criminals say they've received offers for information they claim to have on President Trump, and that their next offer is of data connected with Madonna. Bidding starts at $1 million. We are living in a material world. And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He's from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security, also my co-host over on the Caveat Podcast. Ben, always great to have you back. Great to be with you, Dave. Uh, We are going to revisit a story that you and I have talked about on more than one occasion, and that is this this plan to put some spy planes over our city of Baltimore, our beloved city of Baltimore, basically a a DVR in the sky uh, for
2: surveillance. There's been a development
1: here. Uh, the ACLU is taking issue
2: with this plan. Yes, they are. They're actually suing to try and stop that surveillance plane. And as of now, that plane is actually in the sky. I was reading commentary on some neighborhood Facebook pages saying that they've been hearing this bizarre humming sound. It kind of sounds like a blimp flying over a baseball stadium. Mm-hmm. And it turns out it, it is the surveillance plane. So it's been up in the air for about a week It was sold to the city of Baltimore by uh, a former Army individual, Mr. McNutt, um, who has his own surveillance technology. Uh, There have been a lot of legal policy challenges to this, um, but the airplane is finally airborne. And the ACLU is suing on a bunch of grounds. Uh, Obviously, they're worried about individuals' Fourth Amendment rights. When you have an airplane that can take millions of different pictures in real time of the city, that certainly almost by definition lead to unreasonable uh, searches and seizures. The government did not get any sort of judicial authorization to take those pictures. Um, and, you know, because of the way the technology works, you can zoom in beyond a city block onto an individual home uh, right. or an individual sidewalk and, and see an individual there. Um, and then, you know, there are a lot of potential first amendment concerns here we've talked about uh, on this podcast and, uh, and on our podcast, how, um, you know, the potential for racial bias creeps into all of these uh, surveillance technologies. And it's notable mm. from the ACLU's perspective that, you know, the first one of these spy planes that's going up in the country is going up over a city that is 60 percent African-American. Mm. Um, and, you know, even though it, it is a city that has suffered from a pretty serious crime spree over the past several years, I think um, that's certainly something worth noting. And, you know, they've talked about how surveillance methods have been used for uh, both religious and or against religious and political groups. One of the ones they mention uh, in this article is the Black Lives Matter uh, group uh, in Baltimore City. So, yeah, we're going to I think we're going to have to sit back and wait to see where this lawsuit goes. Litigation like this can take a long time. Uh, You're going to have dueling motions a lot of different legal proceedings. I think we could be several years away from some sort of uh, resolution on this issue. And meanwhile, you know, unless the ACLU is able to obtain an injunction, which I think is, is unlikely um, because a judge would have to find that this spy plane is irreparably harming the citizens of Baltimore, then, you know, while this litigation continues, that plane is in the sky taking pictures. So smile, Baltimore. Uh, you were on, on camera. <laughs> Well, let
1: me let me play devil's advocate here, because first of all, is it even fair to call it a spy plane? I mean, do we call uh, security cameras that police put out? Do we call them spy cameras?
2: Fair enough. Sure. You one could. But yes, you're right. You're right.
1: Well, but also it makes me wonder. um, It is my understanding that when you are out and about in public, you have no reasonable expectation of privacy. How does that uh, not apply here? Is it just the scale of it?
2: I think the scale is a huge part of it. So, you know, that doctrine that you don't have a reasonable uh, expectation of privacy when you are in public view was created uh, in an age of much less pervasive technology. It was really about what would the police spot, um, you know, if they were to see you running on the street or running out of your house. That's Mm -hmm. the sort of the notion of the plain view doctrine. Does that doctrine and should that doctrine change when we're talking about a plane that can take millions of real-time photos and engage in you know, 24-hour surveillance of people who are out in public? Is it right. still fair to have that same legal doctrine apply in this age of new technology? And I think the ACLU is going to argue, and they have some you know reasonable Supreme Court precedents at their side, that things are fundamentally different. We're going to have to adapt that plain view doctrine to deal with a technology like this. Because the legal doctrine is is outdated. Um, and I think they're going to be justified in making that argument. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm not sure which way federal judges will come down on that
0: issue.
1: Do you suppose that, that it could be a situation here where the the plane is allowed to stay in the air, but in order to use any of the information it gathers, you'll need a warrant?
2: So that's that's possible, you know, unless the uh, program is enjoined on one of those First Amendment issues, because you can burden people's constitutional rights, even if there's no criminal proceeding. But yeah, I mean, I could certainly uh, envision a circumstance where a crime is or a potential crime is caught using this aerial surveillance technology and a criminal suspect tries to suppress that evidence on Fourth Amendment or First Amendment claims. And then that's going to be litigated at an individual criminal proceeding. You know, maybe that instead of this ACLU lawsuit will be the vehicle where we get some clarity on the constitutionality of this uh, surveillance but you know that's going to take time too because we're going to have to wait to have an airtight case where we really did catch a person committing a crime the only evidence uh, that was used to arrest that person was aerial surveillance And, you know, once those circumstances present themselves, then we can go through that case. I think because the plane has just been launched, we don't have any criminal suspects who have standing to challenge it. So um, that's why we're seeing the civil suit from the ACLU.
1: Interesting. Well, in the meantime, I'm launching my line of uh, umbrellas that from the sky look like other people. There
2: you go. See, you just have to you have to fight fire with fire. You <laughs> have to
1: look on the bright side of things, right? <laughs> y-
2: yes, exactly. And if you notice a lot of people in Baltimore City pointing their middle finger to the sky, um, you'll know exactly what that means <laughs> now, the,
1: right? It's a new it's a new citywide uh, sign of uh, of solidarity. Yep, <laughs> there you go. All right. Well, Ben
2: Yellen, thanks for joining us. Thank you.